my name is Ashley Mulink, and welcome to our podcast series, Catechism and Sacraments. Today we have a very special episode brought to you by our associate pastor at WEPC, Andrew Morton. He's going to be talking to you today about why we use catechisms at all and why they're important, and he's going to fill us in on some of the history of catechisms. Pastor Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Ashley. It's great to be here today. You've raised some really important questions, so I'll start with the foundational question of what exactly is a catechism? And here's the definition that I will give. At its heart, a catechism is simply a teaching method or tool that uses the format of questions and answers, the discipline of memorization, and the content of a particular system of knowledge in order to teach that knowledge in an orderly way to another person. Now, this name, catechism, can sound really big and scary to a lot of people, but like a lot of words that we use in the church, it comes from a Greek word, the Greek word kateko, which means to hold fast. And the idea is that if you teach someone big ideas, in this case, the big ideas of the Christian faith, using a catechism, that person will hold fast to what they have learned. It will stick. The process of catechesis, or learning with a catechism, is designed to shape the mind, and that shaping of the mind will in turn shape the heart. This idea is at the heart of Proverbs 22, verse 6, which says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not turn from it. So that's the main idea behind the practice of catechesis. Now that brings us to the next topic of how we see catechesis playing out in history. I think it's important to point out that Christians were not the first people to use catechisms. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, catechisms were sometimes used to teach other things like philosophy. The Epicureans, for instance, were known to use a catechism as a way to communicate their teachings in an easy-to-use format. So the early church adopted this teaching tool that already existed and then adapted it for the purpose of training new believers in the Christian faith. As Christianity spread rapidly through the Greco-Roman world, one of the challenges that the church faced was how do we lead people who have come from a pagan background but, but now believe in Jesus Christ, how do we lead them through this process of learning more and more what does Christianity teach and how do I live as a follower of Jesus Christ? So these new believers that went through the process of learning the catechism, they were called catechumens, and these catechumens would go through a lengthy process where they would be mentored by older Christians. They would be trained with a practical understanding of some basic building blocks of the Christian life, like the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, and the sacraments. And then at the end of this process, the catechumens would receive the sacrament of baptism and they would enter fully into the life of the church. Catechisms continued to be used throughout the medieval era, but then they experienced a major resurgence in the days of the Protestant Reformation. For the reformers, the age-old need to educate believers in the faith was augmented by some of the challenges that they were specifically facing in their day. For instance, one question that they had to ask was, how do you teach the faith in a systematic way to people who don't know how to read? 
And so they can't just pick up a Bible and read that for themselves. How do you teach people who have come from a Roman Catholic background the distinctives of Protestant Christianity? And in a day when most of the people going through the catechism were no longer adult converts, but now are instead the children of believers who are now growing up in the church, how do you teach the faith in such a way that not only adults, but also children can now participate in this process? These concerns, coupled with a driving passion to recapture and amplify the teachings of the Bible, fueled a tremendous surge of catechism writing and use. Famous reformers such as Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, and other influential leaders all wrote catechisms of their own to hand out to their congregations. Local leaders also adopted catechisms as a way of clarifying for people who lived in a specific area Hey, this is what we believe, and this is how we believe Christ calls us to live out our faith. Within the Presbyterian and Reformed tradition of Christianity, which happens to be the particular branch of the Christian family tree to which our own congregation here belongs, the most famous catechisms, which have gained a global following and have remained influential since the 1600s, happen to be the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms. Now, what was the specific purpose behind these particular Reformed Catechisms? Well, the first one to be written was the Heidelberg Catechism. That made its debut in 1563, and it was written to address two primary challenges. One challenge was the question, what do we believe? The people living in the city of Heidelberg and the surrounding area at that point had a pretty clear sense that, okay, we're Protestant, but what kind of Protestant are we? Are we the Martin Luther kind of Protestant, or the John Calvin kind of Protestant, or the Yorick Zwingli kind of Protestant? So the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism set out to answer this question by expressing a John Calvin kind of Protestantism, but in what they hoped was a gentle and unifying way. The second challenge that the Heidelberg Catechism was designed to address was the challenge of imparting the Christian faith to the next generation. Now, I suspect a lot of our listeners can sympathize with that desire. That's something that's important to our church family. And we can probably also sympathize with the discouragement that a lot of people in those days were facing. In, in fact, the original 1563 preface to the Heidelberg Catechism talked about this problem, that the preface laments they, meaning the young people, have in too many instances grown up without the fear of God and the knowledge of his word, having enjoyed no profitable instruction or otherwise have been perplexed with irrelevant and needless questions, and at times have been burdened with unsound doctrines. Now, we would probably say that we face some of those same problems today. But in order to address this second challenge, the Catechism was an attempt to publish a standardized Christianity 101 curriculum that could be taught first to children in schools and in the church, and second, to everyone from the pulpit. So to help with that, the Catechism was divided into 52 sections so that preachers could preach through the entire Catechism every year. So to summarize, the Heidelberg Catechism was written in 1563 to confront the two challenges of doctrinal uncertainty 
and the lack of spiritual formation among young people. And to address these challenges, the Catechism was intended to have three functions. First, it was to function as a standard of doctrine so that people could point to it and say, this is what we believe. Second, it was meant to function as a way of teaching children and new believers the Christian faith. And third, it was designed to function as a sort of lectionary or preaching schedule that ministers could follow in order to provide consistent and practical pulpit instruction in these central matters of the Christian faith. Now next we come to the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms, and the authors of those catechisms, which, which followed about 85 years after the Heidelberg Catechism, they had the first two of those three functions in mind. When the members of the Westminster Assembly met in the 1640s, their assignment was to come up with a number of documents that would settle once and for all the question of, hey, what do we as Christians who live in the United Kingdom actually believe? And this was a, an important question for them to settle because for well over a hundred years, the state of religion in the UK had been kind of like a spiritual pinball machine in which the official creed of the kingdom ricocheted around between Calvinist Protestant, Anglican Protestant, or Roman Catholic, depending on who happened to be in power at the time and whether you happened to live in England, Scotland, or Ireland. So then in, in the aftermath of the English Civil War, Parliament gathered together this group of pastors and theologians to reach an agreement, uh, to publish it, and then to be able to say, okay, folks, this is where we stand. And so the finished product of this process is a collection of documents that included the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms, and a few other documents that were written as a practical guide and instruction for church government and how to go about worship services. Now, technically speaking, the Westminster Standards failed to achieve that purpose. The pinball machine of British religious policy still had a few more rounds left in it, and by the time things finally settled about 50 years after the Westminster Assembly, the only group still using the Westminster Standards was the Church of Scotland. And since then, no one has really tried at all to bring religious uniformity to the entire English-speaking world. They just gave up on that goal. Uh, but in a more narrow sense, the Westminster documents have been successful on a smaller scale. Why? Because they set the standard of belief for the Church of Scotland. And as Scottish immigrants carried their faith with them wherever they went in the centuries that followed, these documents became the standard of belief for Presbyterians all around the world. So for nearly 400 years, most Presbyterians, not all, but most, have been able to point to the Westminster Confession and the Catechisms and say, this is what we believe the Bible teaches. So the Westminster Catechisms were definitely designed to fill the function of a doctrinal standard. They were also designed to serve as a tool of religious instruction. When the Westminster documents were published for the public, the preface cried out against the moral decay and biblical ignorance of the younger generation. It called upon leaders and parents to commit themselves to providing young people with thorough biblical instruction. 
and it commended the Westminster documents for their usefulness in this purpose. Now, now this emphasis on practical biblical instruction is the reason why the Westminster writers came up with not one, but two catechisms. The larger catechism with 196 questions was designed as a, now this is in the words of the catechism itself, as a directory for catechizing such as have made some proficiency in the knowledge of the grounds of religion. On the other hand, the shorter catechism, with a mere 107 questions, described itself as a directory for catechizing such as are of weaker capacity. Now that wording sounds a little shocking to us today, not least of all because memorizing the shorter catechism is a feat that we would not consider for those of a weaker capacity. Most of us could only dream of pulling that off. But that verbiage in the presentation of these catechisms tells us that they wanted to have something for everyone, that the crafters of those documents really took memorization seriously, and so they wanted to have something that would challenge the more advanced students of Scripture, and they, they also wanted to make sure that the catechism was accessible to a beginner audience. And in the way they described it, they paid less attention to age than they did to ability. In other words, they wanted people of all ages to be able to learn the catechism. If someone had asked them, hey, who are these catechisms designed for? Their answer would be, well, they're for everyone. But unlike the Heidelberg Catechism, which was also intended as a framework for preaching, the Westminster Catechism does not seem to have been designed for that purpose. While catechetical preaching has been a staple of Sunday evening services in many Dutch Reformed congregations for centuries, that practice never really caught on in the Scottish Reformed or Presbyterian circles. It appears that Presbyterians have traditionally seen the catechism as a tool for the Sabbath schools and for the home, but not so much for the pulpit. So, to review within Reformed Christianity, catechisms have pretty consistently served a double purpose, one as a standard of doctrine and second as a teaching tool for the last several centuries. And, and that's probably enough for now of a historic overview of how catechisms have been used in the past, especially in Reformed Protestant Christianity. But that brings up the question, how about today? Do catechisms still serve an important role? Has the need for catechisms changed? Are catechisms still worth using today? Those are all questions worth asking. By and large, most churches that have used catechisms as a doctrinal standard in the past are still using them as a doctrinal standard today. Not all, but most. That hasn't changed a whole lot. What has changed, perhaps, is the fact that this doctrinal standard is still on the books, but has grown more and more distant from the everyday life of these churches. For example, the pastor will still learn about and subscribe to the catechism, and a lot of the time the elders have at least had some interaction with the catechism as part of their elder training, but often that's where it stops. And because of that, even in churches that use catechisms as a standard of doctrine and belief, we're not really using them so much in worship. 
or, or teaching them very often to children or to new believers anymore. Now, now that is beginning to turn around in some churches like our own, where we're starting to see a return to catechism use. But what we're seeing is, is that we're kind of having to start from scratch, because this is something that fell by the wayside and has almost completely disappeared from a lot of Presbyterian congregations. And interestingly enough, the catechism that right now we are teaching to our kids and learning together as parents at WEPC is not the catechism that functions as our church's doctrinal standard. Our, our doctrinal standard continues to be the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger and shorter catechisms, of course, the Bible. Uh, but the catechism we teach is the New City Catechism. So there's a little bit of a difference there. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it could make the, it could make things interesting down the road as we find that we're knowledgeable about one catechism, uh, but subscribe to another. But the next question that we turn to is, is how do we get where we are now? And where do we go from here? Now, at first glance, it might seem surprising that after hundreds of years of fairly consistent use, catechisms suddenly fell out of favor in the mid-20th century. I would actually argue, though, that we shouldn't be that surprised by this. In, in fact, at, at the beginning of this episode, we defined a catechism as a teaching method or tool that uses the format of questions and answers, the discipline of memorization, and the content of a particular system of knowledge in order to teach that knowledge in an orderly way to another person. And when you think about it like that, all three of those things, that format, that particular discipline, and, and this kind of knowledge, they have all fallen out of favor in our culture today. When it comes to the format of questions and answers, a, a verbal exchange of questions and answers like this comes across as antiquated and slow-paced in our visual and fast-paced information-driven culture. In the same way, the discipline of memorization has also fallen out of favor. It brings to mind pictures of, of dry, old-school approaches to learning. It seems to us like memorization is an uninteresting way to learn uninteresting information that doesn't really relate so much to day-to-day -day life. And finally, the idea of imparting the content of a systematic approach to knowledge, that has also fallen out of favor. The influence of postmodernism has made us suspicious of truth claims, especially the idea of an organized body of truth claims. Our current culture prizes self-expression, discovering or defining one's own truth, and a personal journey of authenticity. And to most people today, catechisms seem like the opposite of that, a ritual of conformity to an established process of internalizing established information. So I think when we consider what our culture is like, a movement away from catechisms is exactly what we would expect to see. Because so much about the catechism process is profoundly countercultural. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. After all, Christianity itself is countercultural. Nevertheless, I think it's helpful for us to talk about and to understand why using a catechism can be such a hard sell in today's culture. 
I think it's helpful for us to think about and talk about ways that catechesis has been done poorly in the past and, yes, poorly even today, and how we have missed the mark. I think we also need to acknowledge that often we are eager to train minds but have not done a very good job of training hearts. But I think the catechisms still have a lot to offer Christian churches and families, not only today, but also going into the future. First, in the 75 years or so in which Reformed Christianity has moved away from catechisms, the church as a whole has not grown healthier. Bible literacy in North America is at a historic low. Theological literacy is also at a historic low. The percentage of young people who grow up in the church but then leave the church as they grow into adulthood is higher than it has ever been. Evangelicals used to be known for their focus on the Bible and on spreading the word. Now they're known for their focus on culture wars and politics. Anti-intellectualism among Christians was a problem that Christian leaders and scholars were already warning about a generation or more ago, and guess what? They're warning about that still today and are telling us that the problem has gotten even worse. Now, I'm not saying that all of these problems exist because we have moved away from catechisms. I think there are a lot of factors feeding into the current decline of the North American church, but I believe it is fair to point out that abandoning the catechisms is part of this decline. I would say, at the very least, it is one of the symptoms of this decline. Second, even though the North American church has mostly phased out catechesis, we have not successfully replaced it with something else that works better. If we were seeing the same kind of results from a different kind of teaching method, if we had data to show that more modern ministry approaches were consistently raising up generations of believers better trained in the truths of Scripture, then yes, we could perhaps say that we don't need the catechism anymore. We would have reasonable grounds to trade catechesis for something else. But that is simply not the case. The fact is, and again, I'm arguing for correlation, not necessarily causation, but the fact is that in the days when we used the catechism consistently, the North American church was more biblically informed, more theologically astute, more culturally engaged, and more consistently passing the baton of faith from one generation to another. Third, I would humbly submit to you that catechesis still offers us a method to teach things that are worth teaching. And, and teach things that can have a real practical benefit for our children, families, and congregations. Now, memorization may feel outdated to us, but I think there's still a place for it. It is still arguably the best way to internalize certain kinds of information. We see this in the world of education. Many schools today don't drive memorization home in exactly the same way that they used to, but there are some things that are still taught that way. After all, kids still have to learn their multiplication tables. And just as learning basic truths of mathematics is foundational for being able to function in the world, I would argue that learning the basic truths and principles of the Bible and of the Christian faith is no less foundational to being able to function spiritually in the world. Fourth, I believe that catechisms are a valuable tool today, but that they are not 
the only tool that we ought to use. I think we should blend memorization of catechisms with memorization of scripture. Those two ought to go together, in my opinion. I also think that we should tap into other aspects of spiritual formation as well. We don't want just to train minds. We also want to train hearts. And we do that by engaging in story, in worship, prayer, and community. These other vital spiritual disciplines, if used alongside the catechism, will help to keep our approach to catechisms from becoming stale, lifeless, ritualistic, and excessively cerebral. And fifth, I think it's wise to use new catechisms alongside the old ones. Now, I love the old catechisms, and as a teaching elder in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, I joyfully subscribe to the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms. But I think modern catechisms, like the New City Catechism, offer a valuable perspective too. The wording sounds a little bit less foreign to our ears. The New City Catechism and, and others like it deal with things that we're wrestling with now that generations who went before us maybe weren't wrestling with. They've also allowed some questions that were important to believers dealing with particular challenges in those days that maybe don't affect us in the same way. They've allowed those questions to, to slip on by and have replaced them with other questions that deal with contemporary struggles and issues. The New City Catechism is also a catechism that is distinctly reformed, but also unifying. It doesn't pin you down to a particular view of baptism or the end times, for instance. Instead, it focuses on the more central elements of our faith. So to conclude this special episode of our podcast, I will end with a story from the past and a quote from our own time. B.B. Warfield was an influential Presbyterian theologian who lived around the turn of the 20th century. In fact, he actually wrote a pamphlet in the early 1900s entitled, Is the Shorter Catechism Worthwhile? Spoiler alert, Warfield's answer was yes. But in this pamphlet, he shared a story that shows how learning the catechism when you are young can have a lifelong impact on the kind of person that you are. Warfield described how a U.S. Army officer, maybe a personal acquaintance of his, maybe someone that he had just heard about, but this Army officer was stationed in a city out west during a time of rioting and violence. As the officer was walking through the streets in the midst of the chaos, he passed by someone on the street and noticed how calm, composed, and even confident that man appeared to be in spite of the danger around him. He was so struck by that stranger's calm demeanor that he stopped and looked back over his shoulder to get another look at that person. To his surprise, he found that the stranger had also stopped and was also staring back at him. The stranger then walked right up to the army officer jabbed his finger at the officer's chest, and without so much as a hello, asked him the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? The officer, a little taken off guard by this unusual way of saying hello, replied with the answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The response, ah, I knew you were a shorter catechism boy by your looks. To which the officer replied, Why, that was just what I was thinking of you. Now, Warfield tells this story to make the point that learning the catechism 
is not just something that affects us when we are young. It affects us for our whole lives. It places a certain mark upon us that perhaps could even be recognized by others who have gone through that as well. It plants the truths and the principles of Scripture deep within us. It has the power to shape the kind of people we become so that even later in life, we can face life's challenges in such a way that people who pass us on the street might even detect the aroma of Christ in us. Pastor and teacher Timothy Keller makes a similar point. He says, at present, the practice of catechesis, particularly among adults, has been almost completely lost. But then he says, if we re-engage in this biblical practice in our churches, we will again find God's word dwelling richly because the practice of catechesis takes truth deep into our hearts so that we find ourselves thinking in biblical categories as soon as we can reason. Now, I think that Tim Keller is on to something. I think that we have a real opportunity here to re-engage in this ancient practice. As a parent, I'm excited to teach and learn the catechism alongside my kids. I have been blessed by the process, and I'm already beginning to see fruit in their lives. As a pastor, the thought of the families of this church setting the tone for their households and for our congregation by learning the catechism together excites me. It kindles my imagination for how God might work in the hearts and lives of our kids and young people in the years ahead. It gives me hope that when it comes time to pass the baton of faith to those who come after us, we will hand over to them a church that is strong, wise, radically committed to Jesus Christ, rooted in biblical truth, deeply in touch with its past, and well-equipped to face the challenges of the future. Pastor Andrew, thank you so much for sharing all of that information with us and for casting such a beautiful vision around catechism and how we can use it in our church culture. For those of you listening, if you have comments or questions, you can leave them below, or you can always reach out to us at the church office or to me personally at ashley at warsawpresby.org.